the majestic name. Yours is the name that is above every name. It is the name that we need to call upon to be saved. And surely, you have no rival. You have no equal. You are supreme. We thank you for the privilege we have this morning to gather to worship you, to declare your praises, and now to open your word. This is the word that has been spoken to us, that is able to encourage us, that is able to exhort us. And we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would use the words, that the speaker would be hidden, and that the words of God would come forth and meet the needs of every heart, and that the Lord Jesus would be exalted and that God would be glorified. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Job, which most of us are familiar with, documents a contest, an epic contest, between God and Satan. The battlefield is Job's life. Now, Satan attacks Job and destroys his family, his possessions, his body and his relationships. Job's friends slander and accuse him of all kinds of evil. Now, Job never learns what is really going on. He thinks that it's about righteousness and uh, integrity. He complains that God is being unfair for loading all of this calamity into his life. But in reality, it's not about righteousness and integrity at all. It is about trusting God. Now, God allows the enemy to attack Job mercilessly because he is going to enable Job to endure it all. And in the end, Satan loses. Job perseveres and comes out of this entire ordeal with a stronger faith in God. Uh, Today, we're not going to look at the book of Job, in case you're wondering. We're going to look at the book of Revelation, the first 13 verses of chapter, uh, first 10 verses, sorry, of chapter 13. But the context of this passage is very similar to the book of Job. It's a contest or a battle between Satan and God. Now, chapter 13 is in the middle portion of the book, so I thought it would be beneficial to kind of give a little recap of what has happened so far so that we can set the context for what we're going to look at today. The earth and its population by this time have gone through a two sets of pretty intense judgments. They are the population and the earth have been devastated. There's going to be more judgments coming. That start picks up again in Revelation chapter 15. But for right now, we're sort of in a calm before the storm. We're in a break or an intermission period. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, we read that there is war in heaven. Michael and the angels fight against the devil and his angels. And the outcome of that battle is that the devil is cast out of heaven. Now, that eviction or ejection sets the stage for a contest that is going to happen on the earth between God and Satan. Now, the devil knows that his time is limited, but he is determined 
in the time that he has left to do as much damage as he possibly can. And his target is the saints. Now you might wonder, wait, wait a minute, you're talking about saints and it's the tribulation. I thought all the saints were gone by the time of the tribulation. Well, the latter part of chapter 12 and chapter 13 make it clear that they will be saints on the earth during the tribulation period. We're not told exactly how they get there. Some of them are probably saved as a result of the ministry of the 144,000 that are sealed in Revelation chapter 7. It's quite possible that some others come to faith because of the testimony of the two witnesses that we read about in Revelation chapter 11. But the devil determines that he is going to establish a dominion here on earth and his goal is to eradicate these saints. And it's surprising, but he succeeds far more than what we would ever think or imagine. Now chapter 13 and the first 10 verses of chapter 13 document the beginning, the start of the devil's campaign for dominion over the earth. And there are five actors five main actors or groups of actors in this in these 10 verses and they are the dragon the beast the world the saints and of course god but this passage introduces us to the beast and which is another title for the antichrist and we get to see his origin and his nature we're also going to see the world's response to the beast we're going to see the activity of the beast which includes attacking the saints. And then finally, we see God's response to that attack. And that's going to be much of our focus this morning. And there's a powerful message there for the saints of John's time and also for the saints of every age, including our age. So starting in chapter 13, verse 1, begins with the dragon or Satan standing on the shore Uh, while a beast comes up out of the sea. Now, we've already talked about the fact that Satan's objective, his aim, is the eradication, destruction of the saints. But unlike his attack on Job, he is not allowed to act directly against the saints, in this case. So he has to do it through a human agent. And so he raises up this beast, and empowers this beast. So who or what is the beast? A lot of different thoughts on that, but most Bible scholars agree that the beast refers to a human dictator and also the system or kingdom of uh, nations that he rules or that he uh, controls. And that title, the beast, is intended to convey the nature or, or character of the Antichrist. Now, my family sometimes watches a Netflix series called Animals Gone Wild. I'm not sure if any of you have seen it, but some of those encounters, I haven't watched too many of them, but some of them just make you cringe. They make your hair stand on end. Animals out in the wild are, are just fierce. They act without hesitation. There is no uh, conscience or thought of consequences. It's just raw instinct. Now, on the the one hand, it's very captivating to watch, but it's also quite terrifying. Now, the beast, the term here for the beast, 
is the Greek word chiron, which refers to a wild and ferocious animal. The beast is brutal, he's cruel, he's uncontrolled. He acts without any conscience. Now verse 1 says the beast rises out of the sea. Now the sea is often used to represent the Gentile nations, both here and also in the book of Revelation. Now fortunately, what about the heads uh, and the horns and the diadems and the crown? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wonder what that means because Revelation chapter 17 verses 9 to 12 tell us that the seven heads are seven kings. The ten horns are also ten kings. And they receive royal power at some point in the tribulation. And when they do, they hand their power over to the beast. Verse 1 tells us that there were blasphemous names written on the heads of the beast. Uh, This probably refers to the blasphemous character and actions of that system of Gentile powers that the beast controls. Now we have to draw on a couple of verses from the New Testament to really understand this and get some insight But what's happening here, there's blasphemy in three ways or three different uh, actions or activities. First, the beast blasphemes God by taking the place of God. We see that in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Second, he claims to be God. That also we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says the beast proclaims himself to be God. And then third... He, does, he blasphemes God by slandering the true God. We're going to read about that in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 6. So we have a system of, of kingdoms here that is opposed to and absolutely rejects any authority from God. Verse 2 also tells us the dragon is allowed to give the beast three things. He's allowed to give him power and a throne and great authority. Now, you'll recall that Satan makes a similar offer to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. Now, the Lord rejects that offer, but it's obvious that the Antichrist uh, accepts that offer. Now, the Greek word dunamis, which is translated power here in chapter 13, verse 2, is sometimes used of the power to work miracles and wonders. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 11, talks about Paul, says this, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That word there for miracles is the same word dunamis. Now verse 3 describes an event where the beast heals a fatal wound. And the wound and the, and the entire world is amazed by this. They think this is an incredible miracle. Now, most scholars don't really consider this to be an authentic miracle. And there's a couple of reasons for this viewpoint. First of all, we never read or there's no record in Scripture of the devil having the power of resurrection or the ability to either give or restore life. And then second, there's lots of evidence in the Scriptures that tell us the devil is both a deceiver and a liar. And so this would... A fake miracle would be very consistent with his methods. Now, it's worth noting here that the devil is a good imitator of God. And I don't mean that in a positive sense because he does it for very nefarious purposes. The beast is a counterfeit Messiah or Christ, uh, hence the term Antichrist. 
The term anti means false or counterfeit, but anti can also mean the opposite of. And in terms of his character and motivation, the Antichrist is the exact opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to give you some examples, the Lord Jesus did miracles, but he did them to glorify the Father. The Antichrist does miracles to glorify himself. The Lord Jesus is a compassionate and suffering servant who gave his life in order that others might have life. The beast is a ruthless and cruel dictator who thinks nothing of taking life. The Lord Jesus received worship but never actively sought it. The beast demands worship from others and he destroys those who refuse to give it. The Apostle John in his first epistle warns that the spirit of the Antichrist will be active in this age. And several New Testament writers and the Lord himself warn us about false Christs. See the verse, Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 to 24. That verse says this, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a strong exhortation in that, in that passage, Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, uh, for us to know our Bibles and understand so that we can recognize and reject the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, verses 5 and 7 elaborate on the activity of the beast. And I'll let you read that from, from, your, uh, from your Bibles. What's striking in those passages is the unlimited scope of his dominion. Yes, there have been dictators, and there have been emperors, and there has been persecution of saints, but this is the first time that a single individual has had uncontested control over the entire world. And now there's absolutely nothing that stands between this diabolical dictator and his aim of eradicating the saints. And that's the situation that we're in right now. Not not right now, but in that passage in chapter 13. Now the third set of actors that we talked about was the world. Now this is the group, this is the world that has rejected God and refused to bow down to him. Uh, uh, Satan has had the benefit of observing human civilization for millennia. And he understands human psychology and he understands and knows what appeals to the world and he gives them exactly what they have been waiting for. The majority of the world is taken in by the beast and believes that he is capable of doing miracles. He becomes the focus of the world's attention and everyone is captivated by him. Uh, So just for my curiosity, I thought I would find out the highest ranked Twitter accounts. Are you curious about that? What is the what is the number in terms of the number of followers? What are the highest ranked Twitter accounts? I'm not going to read the names. They all belong to individuals. Actually, most of them belong to musicians. That's probably not a surprise. But the number three Twitter account has 108.3 million followers. Number two is 112.2. And the top Twitter account is 120.7 million followers. That's a lot. Now, I have no idea, of course, whether there will be anything like Twitter or Facebook 
uh, when, the, when the Antichrist is on the scene. But if there is, uh, the number of his followers is going to far exceed that number. Now if we take a look at verse 4, Revelation chapter 13 verse 4, there's two questions here that really kind of convey the, the sentiment of the world. And the first one is, who is like the beast? He's absolutely, they're saying he's absolutely unique. There is no one who is his equal. And then uh, the second question is, who is able to make war with the beast? There is no one. He is supreme. He's absolutely supreme. There is no one uh, who is his rival. Uh, we've heard that before, but not applied to the beast, of course. Now, Albert Einstein was once asked this question. He said, what kind of weapons do you think are going to be used in World War III? And Albert, uh, Mr. Einstein, uh, responded and he said, well, you know, I don't know. But World War IV is going to be fought with sticks and stones. Now, by this time, global infrastructure and military technology has probably reverted to something like what it was in the 17th or 18th century. Now, we don't have any idea what kind of firepower the beast has, but most likely it supersedes anything else that is on the earth. And so no one is even thinking or entertaining the thought about attacking or opposing the beast at this time. Now, the world's reaction doesn't stop with amazement. The Greek word proskuno, which is translated worship in verse 8, literally means to fall down on the knees with your head touching, forehead touching the ground. Now, but before we attribute this kind of a response to to Satan's uh, power, we need to understand there is something else happening here. And to understand that, we need to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. Verse 11 says this, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will not believe what it, so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now what we read there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is consistent with the way that, the, that God judges the wicked. And we read about that in, first, in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And that verse says this, As they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. A quote here by R.C. Sproul, One of the ways God punishes is to, evil is to allow men to do what they really want, which is to become more evil. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 28, God gave them over to the evil they want to do. And God does this by withdrawing his restraint, which is, has the result of allowing men's hearts to harden against him. God does not cause men to sin, rather he simply lets them harden themselves as a punishment for their wickedness. The only group on the earth at this time that refuses to worship the beast that refuses to bow down to him is the saints. And I want you to notice that scripture uses a very unique title for this group. And that title is those whose name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. 
It's a pretty long title. Now, the same language is used in Revelation chapter 21 of the saints who are privileged to enter into the New Jerusalem. And that title emphasizes the fact that these saints were absolutely 100% guaranteed eternal life. And the basis of that guarantee was the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, believers today have that same assurance. The names of those who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord are written in that book, and there is nothing that will ever take those names out. That's the guarantee that we have. But let me ask you, is your name written in the book of life? What are you trusting in? There's only one name. Scripture makes it clear. There's only one name that you can trust, absolutely trust, both for the life that is to come and for this life, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation chapter 7 refers to these tribulation saints. It says, After this I looked, to behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribes, peoples, and languages. Now, one thing I want you to notice about this is that those who are brave enough to trust Christ in the tribulation and to stand up to the beast, they don't make it through the great tribulation. They do make it out, but they don't make it out alive. But think about the reward that they receive for their bravery. It's amazing. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. And we really need to think about these passages the next time we are tempted to groan about how difficult it is to follow the Lord in the world around us, in our society. Just imagine what it would be like or what it will be like for the saints in that day and age. So what about God? Where is God while all this is going on? Why doesn't God just unleash the angelic armies and decimate the beast? Uh, After all, the beast is provoking an intervention here. What better way for God to validate the faith of his saints, demonstrate his incredible power and superiority, than to defend them in their hour of greatest need. But God chooses not to intervene. And we can ask, why not? Well, the best answer that I can offer to that question is to point us to Gethsemane and the cross. Now, on that night, the Lord Jesus told Peter that he could command legions of angels to come and rescue him. But he chose not to. On the cross, Jewish leaders and others taunted the Lord Jesus Christ mercilessly and said, come down and we will believe you. Demonstrate your power and your identity. But he refused. Brothers and sisters, the consistent message that we see in the scriptures is that God does not allow Satan to set the agenda or the schedule. He will act against evil, but in his own way and in his own time. Now, I for one am glad that God chose to wait those three days. Aren't you? Amen. But what is God's response? And we read about that in verse, verses 9 and 10. And I have two versions up here because there are subtle differences between the ESV and the NASB. Um, 
It's not that they're different, but they just bring out some things that I thought uh, uh, would be beneficial and it would really be a blessing for us to to look into. The first thing that we read in, in verse 10 is this. Those that are destined for captivity will go into captivity. Those that are destined for the sword will be killed with the sword. And the sense there is no one is going to escape his or her destiny. There's no way to avoid his or her destiny. Now, the New American Standard Bible has a slightly different rendering. It says this, if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. So the sense there is no one is going to escape retribution or justice. The latter part of verse 10 kind of flows from the first part. Uh, The ESV says that here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, the coming persecution, what they're going to endure, is going to require them to exercise faith and perseverance. The NASB has a slightly different uh, translation. It says, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And the way I interpret that is, the sense is, the response of the saints to this persecution, to this hardship that they're going to endure, is going to be a demonstration of their capacity to persevere and to remain faithful. And of course, that's not human strength, that's divine strength. But however you interpret that passage, the response and the outcome, you have to admit, is disappointing. The good guys lose. And it almost sounds, in a superficial way, as though God is saying, you know what, that's life, you just have to deal with it. But notice what it says in verse 9. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now we've seen that before in Revelation chapter 3. Sometimes what God communicates to us is hard to receive and to understand. It doesn't match our expectation and understanding of the justice and righteous character of God. It doesn't seem consistent with what we know about His goodness. But really hearing God means that we need to lay aside our preconceived ideas and be willing to accept what he is communicating to us. Sometimes it means digging below the surface. And when we do, we get an entirely new perspective. Now one of the most painful experiences that I ever had in my life occurred between the ages of 12 to 16. I had to get four teeth extracted and I had to wear braces for four years. Those of you who have experienced braces before will know exactly what I mean. For those of you who have not, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Okay? Every time I visited the orthodontist, for three days, I could not eat solid food. That's how much it hurt. There were lots of times when I was tempted to question why my parents were putting me through this kind of agony. But fortunately, before the whole ordeal started, my parents and the orthodontist sat down with me and explained to me, they were upfront with me, with what was going to happen. They told me, I'm going, you're going to need to be disciplined. You're going to need to follow a protocol. It is going to be painful, but they promised me that if I stuck with it, the outcome would be something great. Beautiful, straight teeth. Okay? What I appreciate here about God's response is that it is so 
personal. Have you ever thought about that? The destiny for each saint has been specifically determined by God. It's not random. It's not uniform. It's not arbitrary. God knows what each saint can take and he is going to give them what they can take. It's not going to be easy. But he knows and he is going to do that. He's decided. Not the devil, not the beast. God has decided what they're going to endure. And not only does he tell them what's going to happen, he tells them and makes it clear to them there is a purpose for this. It is going to strengthen your faith and it is going to bring you honor and glory through the demonstration of your faith. Another thing that's really cool here is that in the end, Satan loses. Right? He fails to force those saints to bow down and worship. They win because they stand up to the beast and they remain loyal to God. It costs them, but they remain loyal to God. Another thing that's quite surprising here, uh, but comforting, is God's honesty and transparency. I'm going to share another story. Um, And don't worry, I have talked to my family about this and gotten their permission, so they're okay with it. But when we lived in West Virginia, the time arrived for my kids to get their vaccination shot. So on the day, Sabana and I went and picked up the kids from school to take them to the pediatrician. We had talked about it and thought about it, but we made the decision that we were not going to tell them until we got to the doctor. Now, in retrospect, I was probably not the best decision, and I wouldn't recommend it, because on the drive there, and certainly by the time they were getting close to the pediatrician's office, they put two and two together, they figured out what was happening, and oh, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was trauma, okay? I wish that we had been up front with them. You know, God here practices full disclosure. He relies on the saints to trust him. He gives them an opportunity to prepare for what is coming and to face it with confidence and with assurance. And I appreciate that. And you know, I think the message of this passage would really have been encouraging to the saints at John's time, who suffered incredible persecution at the hands of Nero and other Caesars. These saints were routinely lit on fire. They were thrown into arenas with gladiators and wild animals. Now our society, bringing it down to us, you know, our society really cannot be compared, uh, if we're honest, with the tribulation time period. And it probably can't be compared, it certainly can't be compared with the first century uh, and all of the things that the saints endured there. But, but we face challenges. And going forward, we're going to face more challenges in living out our faith today. The world, by and large, rejects any thought of objective morality and truth. Openly declaring faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is at best going to get you ridicule and rejection and at worst, a whole lot more. And this culture that, that says it worships tolerance is incredibly intolerant of those who would dare oppose the depravity and hedonism that is just taking over our society. 
And God does not take any pleasure in having his saints experience persecution, in hardship, in suffering. But sometimes those things are the pathway to a stronger faith. The Apostle Peter says this to first century Christians who are enduring persecution. In this, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says there. It's not just faith, but it's proven faith that is precious to God and that results in glory and honor. And to be proven, faith requires adversity. And genuine faith furthers the testimony of Christ and it also opens doors for the gospel. And I'm going to close with an article that I read from the Desiring God website. It encouraged me and I trust that it will encourage you as well. And this article talks about two very brave women in Tehran, which is the capital city of Iran, who undertook the dangerous task of distributing New Testaments throughout the city. Over three years, they managed to distribute 20,000 copies. Now, they didn't realize they were being watched until March of 2009, when they were summoned to the local police station. They were arrested, and they were tossed into a really disgusting detention center. But that arrest ended up providing them with an even greater opportunity, and the women documented this later in a book. They said this, Most amazing of all, most amazing of all, we were in the best place we'd ever been for witnessing to people hungry for the gospel of Jesus. We had spent ourselves and our resources traveling all over the country with the message of salvation, always mindful of the danger if the wrong person overheard us. Now we were stuck in jail, and God was bringing spiritual seekers in waves. The living conditions were not very good. I'm sure they weren't. But we didn't have to deal with travel and traffic. And we could tell our fellow prisoners the story of Jesus openly because no one was going to come into this rat hole to spy on us. Now, jail seems like a strange reward for these women, doesn't it? Who took such great risks to share the gospel. But the article goes on to say this, charged with sedition and threatened with torture and even execution, the women eventually landed in Tehran's notoriously dangerous penitentiary, Ivan Prison. But they would call it Our Church and spent nine months there continuing their gospel mission among the prisoners. What incredible honor and glory these ladies have to look forward to in that coming day. You know, hardship comes in several different forms. Persecution for Christ is just one of them. Uh, There's physical and psychological suffering that we experience, distress in finances and relationships. Uh, We're going through a global pandemic. There's all kinds of repercussions for that, relationally, socially, financially. But in every age, God calls on his saints to demonstrate 
faith and perseverance. We defeat Satan. We win the contest not by avoiding hardship and suffering, but by embracing it as a pathway to glory and honor for God and for ourselves. I believe God is asking each one of us today, will you trust me? Will you give me an opportunity to prove the genuineness of your faith? I'll leave you with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. Uh, Father, you do allow us, you do allow your saints to experience hardship in different circumstances, whether it's persecution for the name of Christ, whether it's other kinds of hardships. But we thank you that you are there through it all and that there is a purpose. And Father, it is honor and glory for you and honor and glory for us. Lord, we ask, as difficult as it is, that you would help us to recognize those opportunities and to embrace them in the way that you designed them for us so that you might be glorified. Continue with us today. We just thank you for this time and this opportunity we've had to look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen.